This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Greg Wynn, or Winnie, as he's known to his mates. Greg is a cropping manager for AAM Investment Group, overseeing Sunshine Farms aggregation around Coronella near Forbes. In this episode, Greg talks to us about his experience with corporate agriculture and his background in the agricultural industry. He discusses how this background has given him valuable experience when it comes to making big decisions on farm. With cost-benefit analysis and budgets, a huge part of his strategy since starting at Sunshine Farms in 2019. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor Rowan Leach travelled to Coronella on a rainy June morning to bring you this chat with Greg. G'day listeners, today I'm here with Greg Wynn, a good mate and someone who taught me a thing or two in my first few years as an agronomist. Winnie, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks, Leachie. Thanks for having me. Can you start by giving the listeners a bit of a run through what you do with your job and who you work for? Yeah, sure. So 2019, I started um, with a company called AAM Investment Group. They're a family-owned Australian investment company who as part of their expansion was looking for a a diverse portfolio across the agricultural sector. They're already in chickens and timber and the cattle stations in the Northern Territory. And then part of their expansion and and diversity was to purchase five farms in and around the Coronella District, which is geographically around um, Condoblin, Forbes and West Wyalong. And I was brought upon to manage those farms and so what does your day-to-day look like in that role? They're a mixed farming operation. So what that originally comprised of was a self-replacing merino flock and both dry land and irrigated cropping. So my day-to-day would mostly comprise of managing up to – we would range, depend on seasonality, from 12 to 18 staff across the aggregation and then another asset that we added on later. So – yeah, between that, running staff, we'd also obviously run the business and, and maintain um, all operations from the cropping stage, obviously right through to all the, all the ongoings that happens in a self-replacing marina flock. So, yeah, lots of moving parts. Also, another part of the AAM story is to invest capital to improve assets. So as part of that, we also undertake it quite a large irrigation development as well as other capital expenditure such as infrastructure like sheep yards and fencing. So the, all those things combined would certainly seem to be able to fill the day in. And so is that operation run by itself or as part of the larger thing? Is it yeah, pretty so self-contained? I guess each asset's run individually so it has its own P&L and own set of books but it, it all falls, our asset like Sunshine Farms would fall under one of AAM's investment portfolios called the Diversified Agricultural Fund, which is shortened to DAF. So under DAF, there is chickens, some timber assets, a large place up at Blackhawk called Terek Terek and ourselves. Sunshine Farms is the, 
is the um, aggregation that, that I manage, but it's made up of five, an aggregation of five other farms. So there's Bergen Park, Round Cow, uh, Sunshine, Warrilai and Glencoe. And how does Burrowang fit into that operation? So Burrowang was a later acquisition. It, I think we're about 12 months into that asset. So it's its own investment and own P&L sheet as well. So it's part of the vertical integration in the diversified ag fund. So our large farm up at Blackhall is a um, quite a large one, up to 60,000 ewes. And then once that asset came on board, Sunshine Farms moved from a self-replacing merino flock to a Dorper lamb fattening enterprise. Then to further vertically integrate that investment, Burrowang Dorper Stud was purchased. So it'll be maintained as a seed stock business, but there'll be the opportunity to expand that with some of the genetics being able to be moved up to our black ore business and improve the flock up there, which in turn Sunshine Farms will see the benefit of a better genetics and and hopefully better output from our lambs. Yeah, so it sort of sounds like that they're working self-contained but to an overall arching goal in mind. Yeah, exactly. So all part of the one family but all required to to be standalone and be profitable in their own right. Mate, we might just get on to this, maybe some of the specifics of the Coronella Sunshine Farm. So what are the soil types there and what do you do there? So... Like a lot of soils in the central west of New South Wales, we've got some variation, but predominantly all the farms ultimately lie on a floodplain. So most of the soils are, are heavier in nature, you'd say, and deposited by a couple hundred thousand years of, of floods. So our soils really range from red sandy clay loams through to sort of heavy grey vertisols. So, you know, very well suited to irrigation, very well suited to dryland cropping and moisture retention because they have the ability to store a reasonable amount of water. In the last couple of years, they've stored plenty of water <laughs> in excess. But yeah, so ranging in soil types and we do have a fair bit of variations, which we are, as we further down our timeline, where we initially started treating, you know, the farms as, as larger operation units, I guess. And then now as we're improving things slowly, we can start to drill down on some variations that we're they're seeing across the paddocks that's showing up in, you know, yield maps and NDVIs. Typically, you know, a lot of those soils in our region are where the soil type is heavier. You know, we have had some issues with sodicity, which is higher levels, as you know, Rowan, like higher levels of sodium in the soil, which leads to poorer soil structure. And that's the sort of variation we're seeing now where we're looking to sort of try and alleviate some of that with some soil ameliorations programs, lime and gypsum and controlled traffic. Is there any plans to sort of suit pastures to those in the long term yep. or is it? So when we got there, we sort of um, would sit down, I guess, and look at each farm in its own right and would do a best land use capability on each farm. So depending on the infrastructure, level of fencing, the soil type, elevation, shade, nutritional weed burden, we'd sort of try and say, right, well, these parts of the farms are going to be better suited to uh, livestock for certain reasons and these parts of the farms are going to be better suited to a cropping phase. So, yeah, we typically use five or six different factors to sort of determine what's the best use of land while still maintaining an overarching goal, which is, um, you know, a mixed farm. Yeah, I think that's a really important step that maybe a lot of farmers that are maybe purchasing a new farm probably don't take 
obviously they probably don't have the resources that you guys have got available, but everyone can sit down and, and have a look at probably their current land and future purchases and just do it like a reconciliation and, and yeah, see what's best absolutely. suited. It's where a mixed farm works, I guess, in that if, you know, say we were just solely a cropping enterprise and no livestock interaction, there's going to be parts of those farms that are going to be poor performing cropping paddocks. And then transversely, there's, there's parts that, you know, are going to be, if you're only livestock, you know, it's not going to be that conducive to growing good pasture or, or got good shelter for livestock. So I think that's where the mixed farming thing is really cool and probably what got me most excited about the role and, and coming down in that. It's what I would do myself is what, you know, AAM were doing. Whilst it make mixed farms can be difficult because there's lots of moving parks and interactions, it's also, you know, exciting and I believe the best use of land in this region. You've hinted at it there, but you are also now running your own farming business. Can you give us a little brief look at that? Yeah, sure. So it's my wife's family farm. So an old soldier settlement block just south of Condoblin. And, you know, due to some tragic family circumstances, I guess, there's been an opportunity for Margot and myself, my wife and myself to run the, the family farm, which is a um, positive in a, in a dark time, I guess. So, you know, I guess my background and career, I guess, has in some ways really set ourselves up for hopefully success in, in our own enterprise. We've been able to pick the things that we've learned from lots of different people and lots of different enterprises that we've had access, that I've had access to over the years. And interestingly, it's probably following that AIM strategy as well of a mixed farm. So we are doing our own self-replacing Dorper flock as well as cropping part of the farm. And Margot and I sat down when we started and looked at the farm map and went for a drive and worked out which paddocks we thought were going to be better suited for livestock and and which paddocks we believe were going to be better suited to cropping. And we wanted to make that roughly 50-50 in terms of land area. And then I get we sort of worked backwards from that to say, right, oh, well, we've got X amount of hectares and this is how many animals we think we can manage relatively risk-free on this area. And then in a better year, we'll trade livestock if required or fatten the offspring. We're probably replicating what we're doing on a bigger scale at work at home on, on weekends, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've hit, like you've said, you're working a fair bit on your weekends there. Yeah, yeah. You, you'd be pretty flat out. How are you making it work? Sort of that work life balance. And basically, you've got two full time jobs. <laughs> yeah. It's like it certainly was a challenge and, it, and will continue to be. But what I have, like, you sort of, yeah, got some good understanding bosses at AAM and they've allowed me to, to change my employment status, I guess, with AAM where I'm able to back off a little bit from there. They've replaced me in my business management role. So now I'm like I'm an assistant manager overseeing the cropping side of the business, which allows me to be a bit more flexible with my time and, and spend a, a few days a week on the farm here instead of burning the candle both ends. It was inevitably going to happen if, if we didn't make a change. That's really good. That's, yeah, I guess corporate agriculture sometimes gets a bad rap, but the fact that you've been able to do that is probably a pretty good relationship that you've formed there. Yep. And AIM would definitely fall under the corporate banner, but we certainly as a business don't see ourselves as, as a corporate. See, uh, AIM certainly is much more of a family, family-owned business and, you know, you can jump on the phone and talk to the general manager. Tomorrow, certainly been very good company to work for and been very understanding with what we want to do in our own in our own little world yeah mate you've hinted at it 
previously, but you've had a long and illustrious career in agriculture. Can you just maybe talk us through a bit of your background? Yeah, sure. So grew up in Glen Innes in the Northern Tablelands and finished year 12 and yeah, like a lot of kids at that stage, you know, you're probably lots of pressure on the make your decision of what you're going to do and I wasn't 100% sure but spent a bit of time working from family, friends on a farm over that period and thought, you know, I love, I love being outside, I love farming, I love cropping. So decided to do agronomy at UNE up in Armidale. So enjoyed myself there, turned a three-year degree into a couple more than three but certainly made a lot of, lot of friends and learned a lot of skills, built a really good network from my time up there and then when I finished uni there, went on the job search and as is such in agriculture, you um, typically find a job through your network, which is what happened in this case and was able to get a job with um, Ag and Vet Services out in Narromine as a trainee agronomist. So I spent 11 years at Narromine with Ag and Vet and moved up from trainee to an agronomist like under my own steam and then built a book of fee-for-service clients and then took on a customer service manager role which is like the store manager and then also um, took on a role as a regional manager for an agronomy team. So that was really important part of my formative years I guess being able to work with such a range of good growers in that narrow mine district and learn a lot from them and um, Ag and Vet had a really good internal training program so we spent a lot of time with other agronomists and from different regions and we did lots of, you know, tours and that sort of stuff. So to be able to do the business management side of things towards the end as well added that, you know, that layer to my learning. Yeah, I think that working with farmers and like obviously working with some pretty handy farmers, you can learn so much from them. Oh, mate, absolutely. You know, during that time, I guess it went from a job to a passion, you know, you're really interested and really invested in, in your customers and and seeing good results and success and go on the journey with them and love my time there. We'd done that and wanted to move, spend a bit of time with my family who was still up in the Northern Tablelands. So we actually packed up and moved up to Armidale, spent some time up there for a couple of years and was lucky enough to get a role with a family farm up there managing a merino place. So obviously with Ag and Vet, my time as an agronomist was very agronomy focused and didn't do a lot of livestock. So yeah, was Pretty fortunate to be able to get a role where didn't have a lot of sheep experience but my boss at the time really wanted that agronomy input into his farm and improve his pastures and nutrition and that's how that came about and that was a great couple of years learning a hell of a lot. Yeah. What was that bit of a change of pace like from agronomy and probably really busy at certain times of year going yeah. into farm management? So I think like, yeah, it was probably the biggest difference most people will attest to I'd say is you know, when you're agronomy, you're living in town and it isn't a nine to five, but in your brain, it's nearly a nine to five because you're not in it when you knock off. Whereas when you're on the, you know, living on the farm and moving on the farm, you're there and, you know, you live it and you breathe it and work becomes a lot more part of your, your life and your family then becomes involved in your work. So, yeah, the, probably the, the change I saw was certainly more hours, but it was enjoyable hours where, you know, you take the kids mustering sheep and you know, landmarking and all that sort of stuff where it actually became part of our lifestyle, I guess. Our work became part of our lifestyle and a passion. So, yeah, that was good. And physically, like it was a lot more fencing, a lot more walking up and down hills. <laughs> yeah, so physically more demanding. But, yeah, certainly loved it. It was great. And then the drought actually hit up there and um, like it did everywhere at the end of 19 and, you know, it was pretty 
terrible everywhere, but the tablelands in particular were probably less accustomed to such a severe drought and it was pretty challenging for everybody up there at that stage. And High, high stocking rates, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I just think the prolonged, you know, they they have lots of short droughts in the New England, but it was so prolonged and, yeah, certainly not downplaying it for anybody else. It was a shocker everywhere, but, you know, it was particularly difficult up there. And, yeah, when a, another one of the network reached out with the opportunity to move down to Forbes Condo region, you know, all the ducks sort of aligned and it was pretty much... You know, I sort of felt like it was a role that I'd been working towards for the last 10 or 15 years. So sort of accumulated or brought together all the skills I'd sort of picked up over the different jobs I'd had. So so have you got any tips for maybe young people just entering the, the ag industry on, yeah, what they should be doing in their careers? You know, it's such an exciting time to be a young person in ag at the moment, I think, because the world's your oyster. Probably the couple of big things is just, you got to start at the bottom and everyone comes out, and not everybody, but I think we all want to rush our career and, you know, it's great to want to progress and that's awesome. But you also just got to do the time too, I believe, and especially in ag. Like you can learn a lot about a crop in 12 months, but that crop will be act very differently the following year because it's gone from wet year to a dry year and every year is different. And I think it's only that once you've got a few years under your belt and you've seen a dry year and a wet year, you know, a late break, an early break, that's when you actually start building really good intellectual property. So one word of advice would be don't rush it, like enjoy the process, enjoy the learning and you don't have to be the manager today, you know, there's time for that. Probably another one is, as I alluded to before, like get your network. So there's lots of ways of doing that nowadays but make sure you get around like-minded people and create your network because in my experience that's where most of my really good opportunities have come from. Yeah, good things happen to good people and, you know, if you work hard, I think you make your own luck and, yeah, certainly and it's an exciting time to be a young person in ag. That um, comment about getting your network, you were probably a big starting in the yeah. in the industry and I just have a, a very vivid memory riding around the back of a four-wheeler with you and you absolutely putting the wind up me about using a chief and uh, <laughs> to this day I don't think I've ever used it. <laughs> no. And that's the thing about doing your time, you know, because you have to sometimes have those experiences. Those, those and horror maybe, stories. Yeah. And, yeah. And if you don't either surround yourself with a good network and learn from them or unfortunately you're going to have to make your own mistakes, it scared a lot of people that achieve. They reckon you just have to <laughs> go on holidays for two weeks after you sprayed it because you make your crop look pretty ordinary. <laughs> So getting back to your role now more specifically, so are you in the paddock much day-to-day anymore or are you now sort of making higher-level decisions? So I'm probably going backwards <laughs> but, in a, but in my mind in a good way. So I reckon I was probably 75% in the office when I was doing the business management role and 25% outside and that's a function of lots of different things. That's a function of so many moving parts in a fast-progressing asset but also in, the, in that investment space there's lots of compliance and stuff which is all very necessary compliance and reporting so there's a lot of time involved in that in the office doing up reports and and whatnot which I really quite enjoyed that part of it as well and then also you know running multiple staff as a fair bit of a HR component so I would have said yeah 75% of my time in the office and then 25% out now with this shift I would say it's the other way Yeah. yeah so which you know, it has been a nice change up. In that management position, how were you making some of your decisions? 
like uh, you did word me up before with your sort of ROI and IRR. I think I've heard yeah. of RO, ROI before. but So I guess in that corporate world there's delegations of authority, I guess. So without getting bogged down in technical, what, all that means is there's different people within the management hierarchy that are responsible or can approve decisions. So once you know your, where you can operate and for me – what that meant was if anything was budgeted, we'd spend a, a lot of time to try and get really good and accurate budgets that would try and incorporate so much detail. The reason being lots of reasons. Everyone should run to a budget. It's just good management. Just everyone should, whether you're a, a farmer or you're a kid getting pocket money, I think budget's a great thing. So the more detail I could get in my budget, the more opportunity I had to make decisions. What that means is if I budgeted to use X amount of kilos of urea per hectare and the budget's been approved by all the appropriate people right up to the board level, then I can go and make a decision based on all my agronomic expertise. So how much soil moisture we have, the seasonal outlook, crop stage, soil test analysis. So I would spend a lot of time getting my budgets as accurate as we could from a cropping right through to the sheep and then then you've solely... Once all that's proved, you're solely making really good on the, on the ground decisions. Where that gets a bit difficult, I guess, is where it's unbudgeted and that can cap- happen for lots of reasons. You know, climate is obviously the biggest driver for unbudgeted costs. So in and, and that process in a corporate world, you go through a layer, you know, of approvals, which would often, you know, say if it was a floods wiped out a fence and we got to replace it and if it was unbudgeted, then we'd do like a cost-benefit analysis. That's quite a simple one but, you know, we'd say, right, oh, well, for this – this amount of investment, we're going to get this much improvement on our capital as well as an operating benefit, be able to run more sheep or run them more effectively. So whilst that might, I hope it doesn't, but might sound a little bit tedious or boring, like it's really valuable exercise to go through to actually understand what you're doing and what impact your decision is going to have on the business both now and in the future. So yeah, that would be the process of any decision, I guess. So and all of those things are falling under our overarching strategy, which is, you know, a mixed farm in the Forbes area with a, with a level of capital development. I think you've explained that really well. That's um, good, yeah. Have you got any, like, little nifty tools or tricks or just is Excel your Excel, Excel, mate, is such a powerful program with so many functionalities that I've I know enough to be dangerous on Excel, I reckon, <laughs> is how I put it. I can, I can make columns add up and average and that sort of stuff. We, we luckily have some resources internally that are really, really good. Some of our business analysts up in Brisbane are just amazing what they can get spreadsheets to do. We use other tools, you know, AgWorld and AgriWeb, like commercial online products, and they're great. They've probably been, I guess how we see them is they're our data capture, but then we still use big Excel spreadsheets. They're just so powerful and there's just no really – we just haven't found too many products on the shelf that can can manage the levels of complexity that we have. You know, the cost-benefit analysis, as I alluded to, that's the crux of all of our decisions essentially and it's such a valuable process to go through, whether that's a you know, set of sheep yards, whether it's a new tractor, whether it's a new fence, like essentially anything that we do from a capital expenditure, so any any improvements or any – machinery goes through that process and it's really powerful like sometimes it's really nice to have stuff but when you actually sit down and run the cost benefit analysis and work out the interest and the depreciation that that's going to have and 
there are payments and then you compare it to what you're already doing and sometimes it's not that exciting unfortunately. Yeah, so that process I'd encourage everyone to learn, you know, to do that and it, it's sometimes it's hard to manage the cost benefit will be, you know, what's how do you say putting a new set of sheep yards is going to save you money but you try your best and say, so, well, we think it'll mean one less FTE which is a full-time equivalent. So by having a better set of yards, if we can run half a staff less and that staff can go and do something else that's better use of their time instead of pushing sheep up that won't go around a, a bad bugle or something, yeah, we try. that's how we try and do a cost-benefit and it's a good process to go through to make sure you're spending your money wisely and it's so important in a corporate thing to make sure we're spending other people's money wisely. I actually did a, a very... S- much smaller scale uh, cost benefit analysis of, as you know, the cattle job has turned off a bit and I've got some of my own little wieners at the moment thinking, should I feed them or should I ramp them? And after nutting out the Excel spreadsheet and adding up the, the columns, uh, I've worked out that I was going to be a dollar ahead better off if I fed them. So I think they're on the truck next Monday. So what's been your experience overall in corporate agriculture? Oh, look, my experience, is, it's been wonderful. But what corporates and what AIM has certainly done in my region is, or in our region here is, you know, we've bought family farms that due to their succession, for whatever reason, there wasn't a path forward. So I think most people could relate to that. There's been lots of family farms sold, unfortunately. But what AIM has done has been able to, you know, purchase those family farms and then be able to inject capital into them which is probably what most of those families wanted to do for the last 20 years and were unable to. So it's really exciting to be able to start with a farm and have a goal in sight to where you want it to get to and then go on that journey and, and actually see the change. And that's something that particularly in the last six months, we've really started to see a lot of that change come to fruition. So it's really rewarding to be able to drive around and see you know, that you've actually had a positive impact on not only a farm or a paddock or a crop, but in our case, we hope we've had a positive impact on the region as well. And the community, yeah. And the community. So we've replaced some of the family farms that were probably, you know, their kids had grown up and gone. So they weren't putting kids on the school bus anymore and we've replaced them in a lot of cases with young families. So kids, we hope we put more kids in the school and we hope we've invested some capital in the local business. We try and employ all our contractors and service providers and everything local so you know we're hoping we're having a positive you know legacy i guess on the community and being part of that's been fantastic cool mate i think that's a really good answer thanks for your time on that one thanks for listening to part one of this two-part chat with greg Wynn. join us next episode as we continue our conversation and learn more about how the recent flooding along the Lachlan River has led Greg to a new approach to managing for future floods and drought. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan. 
and I'll chat to you next time.